This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more, and really highlights from our interviews throughout the week on our daily radio show. And again, Jason, you know, kind of crises of all sorts this week, COVID-19, education, inequality, and racism, and running and leading businesses against that backdrop. We cover it all this week. Week 19, working from home. Unbelievable. It has been that long. And while we see sort of maybe a little light at the end of the tunnel, mm. feels pretty distant at the moment. And one of the conversations, Carol, we certainly got a lot out of was the conversation we had with Bishop T.D. Jakes back with us talking about those dual crises affecting the nation and his strategies for moving forward. Slavery was intentional. Jim Crow was intentional. Inclusion has to be intentional. Plus, the virus, of course, front and center. We caught up with the new president of the American Medical Association, Dr. Susan Bailey, talked about so much, including the state of a vaccine development. But first, let's talk about this week's cover story. It's a great one. Corporate activism with a cherry on top. We're talking about (laughs) Ben and Jerry's. It's incredibly compelling, incredibly timely. This is a moment in many ways, Carol, that Ben and Jerry's was built for. Jordan Holman, Bloomberg News retail reporter, joined us along with Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. Within the last month, um, uh, as Black Lives Matter uh, started getting um, a ton of attention and the protest took off, you know, the, the first company that actually was out of the gate with a response and it literally just made all of us go, whoa, that was a really amazing move was Ben and Jerry's and Ben and Jerry's, you know, it wasn't the first time they've done this. It, it is actually really part of the company's DNA, um, the, the corporate activism, the social justice. It, this is just almost the latest chapter of it. And when we saw that, um, uh, Jordan actually was like, she was the one that said all that. <laughs> And I was like, okay, why don't you turn around and write that story for us? Go type that. And that was, uh, yeah. And that was, um, we pulled in Thomas Buckley, who knows the Unilever sign of it. But that really became the expression of this. So Jordan, you know, this this company has been, you know, really known for this from from day one. I think the thing that you, you were able to really kind of bring to bear in this is like, so many other companies fail when they try and do this. What makes Ben and Jerry's stand out? Yeah, um, Ben and Jerry's, uh, their statement just really hit, you know, we, they said dismantle white supremacy. And what we were seeing with other statements is, you know, Black Lives Matter and we support the community. But what makes them stand out is that they have a dedicated team that thinks about these issues every single day. So when a tragic incident like the killing of George Floyd happens, it's not, they don't have to scramble to get the resources or to think through this. They've educated themselves. They've done the homework. They've connected with um, partners like Culver Change and NAACP to get the wording right. Well, and what's fascinating too, Jordan, is it is in such contrast to so many other franchises, institutions, and companies that really fumbled it. Absolutely, yes. Um, so Ben & Jerry's has, for the past few years, said, we're going to focus on criminal justice reform. We want to understand how structural racism in the U.S. works. And you don't always get that intensity from other corporations and in, in honing in on that. And one thing that uh, Thomas and I learned from reporting on this is that when, they, uh, when Ben & Jerry's launches a campaign, they'll spend a year thinking about the topic, um, thinking about criminal justice, how they can work with partners, how they can communicate that to customers who might not understand what structural racism is or the the school-to-prison pipeline. And so that's why when 
a, a statement from them is released, it really hits and resonates with people. Well, what's interesting, Jordan, is you know, we had uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes on our show yesterday, and one of the things mm. that he said that I really took away, and I think Carol did too, was this notion of exactly what you're talking about, this intentionality. And he basically said, he was like, look, and, and he was being 100% serious. He said, slavery was intentional. Jim Crow was intentional. Mm. Diversity and inclusion have to be intentional as well. But it's not always easy, I think, to do that, and yet it is, and and I, that's I'm, I'm joking a little bit when I say this. It's baked in in many ways. I mean, it's there on the package. It's there uh, in the company, and that goes back to the founders, right? Yeah. So Ben and Jerry's has been around since the late '70s, and Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfeld, the founders, they've always spoken up on issues that they think matter. And what's changed um, is that. You know, it's become more structured, this team. So when they want to speak out on if it's climate change or if it's uh, structural racism, like we're talking about, or whatever issue, they're being very intentional about what they want to say and how they say it. And um, for this story, we talked to the executive director of Color of Change, Rashad Robinson, who speaks to corporations all of the time. But he said what sets Ben and Jerry's apart is that they actually put that energy, the time, and he even joked, you know, the flavor behind Black Lives Matter and the things that they care about. Jordan, um, uh, another element that I, I want to bring in here is how, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's owned by Unilever now. Unilever, this massive uh, portfolio of, of, of companies. Um, and not always as as sort of woke as Ben and Jerry's is, right? Like this is also the company that does Uncle Ben's rice, and Asia it has skin whitening brands in Asia that it's also trying to figure out what it's going to do. What has Unilever as a company learned from you know having Ben and Jerry's as part of sort of its portfolio? Yeah, this goes back to Jason's earlier point um, about the founders. So when Ben and Jerry's was being acquired by Unilever, the founders really fought for that independence over um, the social mission, that element that even though they're going to be owned by this conglomerate, they're going to still have this independent board to push the issues that they care about. And that's Bloomberg News retail reporter Jordan Holman and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber talking mm-hmm. about the cover story. Carol, it's a good one. Well, it's a good one. It's also an incredibly deep dive into Ben & Jerry's history, how it fits into the massive company that is Unilever. And in keeping with that, we go from one massive company to another because coming up next, a behemoth in the brand and packaged food business, how it is pivoting during the pandemic. We'll hear from Mondelez Chairman and CEO, Dirk Vandeput. It's the latest edition of Business Week Talks. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. And Carol, mm-hmm. uh, we've been in this for a while now. That's right, Jason. And in keeping with that, so too have so many different companies, of course, trying to figure out how to make their way through the pandemic. We caught up in another edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks with a company and a CEO that is just huge in the packaged food business. You're talking about brands like Oreos, Cadbury, Trident, and Tang, many, many more. We caught up with the Mondelez chairman and CEO, Dirk Vandeput, and talked about how they are seeing rising demand. In general, for our categories, what we see is that there is an increase in in-home snacking. Um, um, and, and there's a, a, a pronounced change of the consumer eating a lot more 
in their how in their homes and so less in restaurants less on the go and we see that effect on our on our business clearly so they tend to eat more biscuits they tend to eat more chocolate at home but then a, a category like uh, gum or candy which is more on the go bought in convenience stores and so on is uh, is affected and is is uh, is uh, negative versus uh, previous year I have to say, as the you've been net, talking, yeah. can I just say, Jason and I have been nodding about yep. the chocolate. That checks I mean, out. <laughs> In-home eating, Dirk. It's happening. <laughs> Including yeah. Oreos yeah. on our end and lots of chocolate. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the other big thing that you see is that, the, the, just like you were alluding, consumers want uh, a little bit of normalcy. They, they want to feel good, safe. Um, and, and so they, they snack more, they go a little bit more to comfort food. Um, they also go back to the brands they know and love, and, and, and you've mentioned a few that we have. So we also see that effect that uh, our, our market share and our big brands are, are, are growing uh, quite a bit. Um, the, the other one that I, I wanted to mention about consumers is that they are being, I won't call it, driven online. Uh, I think what we will see as coming out of this is that this was really the moment that shopping uh, showed a major shift from going to the store to buying more and more online. And we see for groceries, we see a lot of first timers really starting to buy their groceries uh, online. So those were some of the big the big things we're seeing as it relates to the consumer. Right. Um, and so, Maybe, Dirk, when, when you yeah. think about sort of how you have to respond to that, tell us about your supply chain. Have you had any interruptions there? Have you had to change anything to meet that customer demand, but also to meet, you know, any of the challenges about getting it to stores or getting it to people's homes? Yes, yes. Um, I would say at the moment things are, are better, certainly in the U.S. and in, and in Europe, they're still sometimes a little bit fragile in uh, emerging markets. But um, overall, I would say we never really had a major disruption. Sometimes a plant had to shut down for two, three days because our workers couldn't get to the plant or we had to negotiate with the government that our, our, our uh, plant could uh, continue to work in some countries. But overall, I would say we've been able to keep our supply chain going uh, largely We've seen slowdowns um, as we needed to sometimes uh, take people out of the plant if there would be somebody that uh, that got uh, um, uh, infected. Um, so it, it has been a challenge. That is now uh, better, um, but we are worried as we see, for instance, in, in the U.S., uh, the rise of the cases as, as we see it in the different states happening. If we have a plant there, we will start to see more cases in our plants and that could have an effect on our supply chain, obviously. So um, you went exactly where I wanted you to go, which is, you know, with these increasing cases and maybe even the potential of a second wave, do you start stockpiling some ingredients in different places and different regions? How do you anticipate it now having gone through this for a few months? Yes, we, we do uh, prepare for stockpiling ingredients because our suppliers could go and could have problems too. We, uh, we start to look for temporary workers or increase our workforce to make sure that we can keep our supply chain going and our sales force uh, going. We reinforce all the measures that we have in our plants and in our offices, but we also uh, spend a lot of time with our people talking about how to behave outside of our facilities and how to make sure that, that you stay safe and healthy. Um, and, and as it relates to office workers, we are still 
recommending everybody to work as much from home as they possibly can. And remind us in terms of your workers, um, how that has gone in terms of holding on to workers, keeping workers. What we're seeing, you know, I think we're at this very interesting time, um, Dirk, where companies, as we head into another earnings season, are reassessing kind of what they need going forward. And of course, it depends on demand going forward, and it depends on the global economy going forward. How do you see that? Yeah, we, we are lucky in a way that uh, I would say overall our business is is uh, is doing pretty pretty much okay. The, we have more variations around the world, and so it depends a little bit where you are. Our, our U.S. business is doing very well at this stage. So we've been recruiting and adding workers to our business in the U.S. But for instance, Latin America at the moment, uh, our business is, is, uh, is suffering a little bit. And there we have to be a lot more careful and, and try to get by with the, with the minimum amount of workers that we possibly can. So it's not a uniform picture around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. for us looks, looks, looks very good at this stage. Um, we, um, we also have to work quite a lot with our office workers um, working from home gets to you after a while. It's, it's, mm-hmm. It seems great, but sitting in front of screens eight hours a day, day in, day out, and, and the blending of your personal life with your professional life uh, and potentially having small kids in the home and so on, uh, we, we have to make sure that we um, make, uh, make sure that there is also social contact, that people really disconnect, uh, that, that they do not spend uh, more time than needed in front of their screens and so on and so on. And so then the, the number of complaints of, of uh, mental health goes, goes up a little bit. So th- there are consequences to working from home, we see. That's Mondelez Chairman and CEO Dirk Vandeput, and there's more of that interview online as well as in the magazine. And i got to say, Jason, the big headline from that company, you kept talking about it throughout the week, is how Mondelez is cutting by 25% the number of items that they sell. Their SKUs, as the CEO said, that's a pretty big move. It is a big move, and it really shows how, as you said just a few minutes ago, big companies are having to pivot. They're having to adjust to different sorts of demand, Mm -hmm. and we also love talking about how people are using, apparently, Oreos in cooking. (laughs) I love that. Speaking of big moves, how about bringing venture capital into the 21st century? I've been increasingly hopeful about the changing complexity that I've seen in some of the generations that are coming up behind me. Why Plexo Capital's Low Tony is hopeful about the future of diversity and inclusion in the world of VC. Looking forward to that conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. And Jason, we like to remind everyone that we're having these interviews in real time as the world continued to move and change around us. Well, and one of the things that we've zeroed in on, Carol, on this program throughout the week and on this show is diversity and inclusion, but really getting down to brass tacks. What needs to happen across various industries. And low Tony over at Plexo Capital, he's got some ideas. And he started with us talking about his own personal experience. I think it's commonplace for someone like myself, black male. I grew up in Oakland, California, went to a historically black college in Hampton, came back to go to Cal. And I got used to being 
the only black person in the room. It's just common. So I think that's a common experience that many of us have. But I've been increasingly hopeful about the changing complexity that I've seen in some of the generations that are coming up behind me. And I believe that we're at a point where we've reached an inflection point where we've been able to shine a light and visibility. And I'm, I'm pragmatically optimistic about the, the prospect moving forward. And so there are a number of aspects, as you know better than we do, Lo, in terms of the investing landscape, the venture capital landscape, sort of where the money comes from, who invests it, and then where it goes. I know you've been working on all aspects of that. I do wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you're doing around the general partner level, because I think you are rightly very focused on that piece of of making the investors not exactly, not just what Carol described, which is, you know, a bunch of rich white dudes making decisions about where the money goes. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was a partner at Google Ventures, GV, one of the things we wanted to do was to get access to more deal flow. So we had this really interesting thesis that when we started to look at some of the smaller, earlier firms that were investing at that initial check level, we saw much more diversity than at the larger firms. Mm. And so we came up with this thesis that, wow, you know, the, the indirect path that many black uh, venture capitalists have, like myself, produces really interesting networks and provides a different lens to be able to evaluate opportunities and entrepreneurs that might not have the same understanding traditionally on Sand Hill Road. And so we decided to make investments into these venture funds to get access to their deal flow. And I took that one step further and created Plexo Capital and expanded to not only black GPs, but other GPs of color and and female GPs. And really it was an alpha strategy, right, to identify inefficiencies and information and identify opportunities that others were missing. And what I also noticed was that, wow, you know, actually this has a much broader implication to to the vertical ecosystems for black for black entrepreneurs, for people of color that are entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs, which is if we can get capital into the hands of a diverse set of investors, the data tells us that their portfolios end up being diverse. Right. Well, if they've got diverse portfolios, those diverse founders are going to hire diverse teams. And if there's a successful exit that creates wealth generation for those employees, well, lo and behold, you have a diverse set of execs that are going to write angel checks, likely to diverse entrepreneurs. They'll have the financial stability and comfort maybe to take that risk and start their own company. Or maybe some of them will even become venture capitalists themselves. But more importantly, it starts a wealth creation pattern. And then wealth is also transferred back successfully to those initial investors. And if they were diverse, they go down the wealth creation path. And then capital is returned to the original limited partners or the investors into those venture funds. And once those limited partners see that positive signal of dollars coming back, they say, wow, this is working. Let's deploy more capital. And so that creates this flywheel within that vertical ecosystem. I mean, it's not dissimilar to how we see geographic ecosystems develop outside of Silicon Valley in places like Seattle, New York, and Austin. But in this case, it's vertical around black entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs, or other people of color. So I I feel like our our model, even though at the outset the purpose was to deliver alpha and increase returns, it has this 
additional benefit of being able to help to accelerate these ecosystems on a vertical basis. And that's Plexo Capital founding managing partner, Low Tony Carroll. And this is a guy, we're going to be going back to him for updates. I know it. Well, listen, Jason, he was a partner at Comcast Ventures, then GV, which was formerly Google Ventures. I mean, Alphabet was the anchor investor in his own investment firm. So this is someone who truly understands the VC world. And check out our podcast feed for more of that interview with Low Tony. Bottom line, I like what he said, Jason, about creating a flywheel to get more diversity in blacks in the world of VC. Well, coming up next, getting into college, it isn't just about good grades, teacher recommendations, and great SAT scores. Jason, we know the Varsity Blue scandal revealed so much more. This is the book you have been waiting for to understand everything that went on. Melissa Korn, Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. This is This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show this week. And Carol, Mm. this is a story (laughs) that even with everything going on in the world, man... You want an update. You know, Jason, I can still remember when this news broke. We were sitting in our studio at 731 Lexington, March of last year, and just watching it unfold in front of us. It became the largest college admission scam ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Melissa Korn of the Wall Street Journal is co-author of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal. We talked with her about the book. We were really blown away by... So so many things, honestly. Yeah. Uh, the scope, the breadth, the sophistication of this scheme that uh, the mastermind Rick Singer put together, but also what it says about our society and parents' obsession with prestige and brand name schools. And it was often really the parents, more so than their teens, who were striving for these particular institutions. And they were the ones driving driving the whole process. So, Melissa, take us back, because this was something, as Carol just alluded to, that landed, and all of us across the the journalistic world, the parental world especially, Carol and I both have mm-hmm. uh, juniors in high school, so we pay very close attention to all of these things, as many do. Remind us what Operation Varsity Blues laid bare. Yes, so in March of 2019, which does seem like forever ago, harkens back to a simpler time, uh, showed that uh, there was this college admissions counselor, Rick Singer, who had managed to find and exploit a few real weaknesses in the selective college admissions process, both in terms of standardized tests, where he had paid off test site administrators and a proctor uh, to fudge and cheat fudge scores and cheat and improve the results for a number of clients. Uh, He also found weaknesses in athletic recruiting and the special slots that are given to recruited athletes in the admissions process. And he arranged to bribe a number of college coaches and uh, others to flag individuals as recruited athletes, even when they didn't play a sport. And there was nobody checking. That was one of the big things that was really made clear here was that nobody was checking the math. Nobody was test, you know, auditing these applications in any way because nobody ever thought that a coach would choose somebody who wasn't going to actually help the team. But if the price tag was high enough, clearly they did. It's amazing, Melissa, because I think, you know, we've all understood 
I think safe to say that there's understandings that there are legacies and families that have been at schools and, you know, you know, donations, donations, you know, that things happen. But this was just on a whole other level. Right. So we have a whole chapter in the book called The Gray Area, which gets at the legacies, donations, the VIP lists of applicants. And I think everybody knows that that goes on. This is kind of at the far end of the spectrum and obviously a little bit too far in illegal territory. But it really does highlight some of the existing inequities in the system. And I think it's a good reminder that even those people who aren't doing things like that or even people who aren't legacies or donating hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, many of them have an edge too. If you're hiring a private SAT tutor or essay coach or sending your kid to a regional club soccer team that costs $10,000 a year, those are not experiences that every student has. So, Melissa, one of the amazing things about this book, because this is, of course, a scandal that has been written about and talked about is you and your co-author got some amazing access. You got to people that basically no one else has gotten to. Tell us about that. Yeah, we were really fortunate in being able to speak to a lot of the principal players in this whole story. And I think a part of it was we made clear that they were going to be in the book whether they wanted to or not, and they could help make sure that it was accurate or try to hide from it. And a lot decided it was better to engage. So, you know, we we can't say who exactly we spoke with, and we make really clear that don't assume that just because there's a scene from one person's point of view that that was the person that we got the information from, uh, of course, as we protect our sources. But we really did try to get inside their heads and explain a little bit about why they engaged with Singer, why Singer was the way he was, why the prosecutors took the approach they did. Um, because I think there's nobody is, it's really hard for any individual to be painted, you know, black and white, good guy, bad guy here, because even the parents who committed felonies ultimately were in some twisted way trying to help their kids. And that's relatable. What's, I read a little excerpt, I think it was in People um, online, and you talk about one uh, Devin Sloan who asked his son to pose for photos in the family pool wearing full water polo gear and didn't really give him a reason why. And the son did it even though he didn't play the sport. Like, it's just amazing kind of some of the steps that parents went to and kept their kids in the dark. It really was. And I think, you know, with that that, uh, excerpt and the anecdote with the son, Mateo, he was really thoughtful about the whole thing and afterwards and said, you know, I was really mad at my dad, but then I kind of felt bad for him that he thought that he needed to do this to make me successful. Uh, you know, this is a teen who would have been just fine on his own. He would have landed at a perfectly good school um, without that extra, all the extra bells and whistles and costumes and posing right. and things like that. And his dad was sentenced to four months in prison, but he got to stay at the school, correct? Right. He's one of the students who was not kicked out. Every yeah. university, every college did it, did their reviews a little bit differently, Um some uh, expelled or rescinded the admission offers for students. Others allowed the student to continue. It really was case by case at a lot of these places. 
Melissa, tell us more about the, the parents in this case. And we're speaking with Melissa Korn, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and co-author of the new book, Unacceptable Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. Tell us about the parents, because what you just said, I think, resonated throughout this story uh, that in many cases, at least this is, I think, how I read it, for the parents, this was as much about them as it was about their kids. Absolutely. And we talk a lot about that culture that was really prevalent in some of these pockets of Southern California and the Bay Area and New York and that your kids are a reflection of you. So if your kids are succeeding by certain kind of predetermined measures, you as a parent are therefore succeeding. And it's beyond, you know, are they walking and talking when they're supposed to? It's are they getting into this particular school? Because this particular school is one that you can boast about at a cocktail party. Well, that school that's perfectly good, but perhaps not as well known. You know, nobody wants to hear, hear about that over hors d'oeuvres. So these parents really did get very caught up in that and in the sense that my kid needs to succeed because it's a way of showing that I am doing a good job as a parent. So what's happened as a result of this? And I wonder in terms of admissions, I mean, I feel like I have to say, I do remember when it broke in our, we, Jason and I were in our New York studio and we were just like, you know, and, and especially because there were a lot of names beyond the celebrity names that we knew, um, mm-hmm. whether in the financial community. But I do wonder if like all colleges kind of went <laughs> and was like, OK, you know, like, let's do, you know, a deep dive to find out our process and make sure we're doing it the right way. Like what's what's happened as a result of it? What's maybe gotten better at colleges and universities when it comes to the admissions process, if anything? Yeah, er- early on last spring and summer, there were these hints that there was going to be change and these moments of reflection and and introspection and, okay, yeah, maybe we should audit our application or if somebody gets in as a recruited athlete, let's make sure they actually join the team. And, you know, a number of schools came out and said they would do that. California um, actually passed some legislation at the state level that schools needed to be more transparent about things like legacy admissions. But at the end of the day, there wasn't dramatic change. It's not like schools are saying no to donations that happen to come from families that are, um, you know, a couple years off from college. And I, I don't see that stopping. The The story of Laurie Lachlan and her husband, Massimo Giannulli, and their two daughters are, helps illustrate just kind of how the athletic recruiting scheme worked very well. He, um, the two girls at various points posed on an erg in their home gym and the photos were sent to Rick Singer's team, and they ended up not being used in the final application. The one of his um, deputies used a different different pictures, but it just showed how easy it was and how kind of murky some of the discussions were about exactly what was happening here. So we we get into it in the book of what their defense was, uh, you know, what they say Singer told them was actually going on and that, no it's totally fine you're giving financial support to the to the crew team it's fine that they don't play that they're you know that they're not rowers or coxswains this happens all the time totally kosher versus yes i am fully aware i am making a bribe so that my kid can get into school pretending to be an athlete and not being an athlete that's our conversation with the co-author of unacceptable privilege deceit and the making of the college admissions scandal melissa corn she's a reporter at the wall street journal jason this is a story that man we've been talking about so much over the last year year and a half 
as soon as I knew this book existed, I wanted to read it and I wanted to talk to <laughs> Melissa Corrin. So I'm excited we got a chance to do that. This is a scandal that will have repercussions for years to come. And especially when you synthesize it, Carol, with everything that's going on in higher education, owing to the pandemic, owing to questions about inequality and racial justice, it is timely to say the least. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Mass. There are plenty coming up in our next hour, including where we stand on vaccine research. We'll hear from American Medical Association President Dr. Susan Bailey. Plus, a true voice of reason back with us, Bishop T.D. Jakes. He joined us from Dallas talking about the dual crises facing this nation. There's a health crisis. There's a racial justice crisis. He is dealing with them both. Got to say, I was nonstop taking notes on everything he had to say. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Carol, we're going to take you around the world in some ways, or at least across a number of industries, how they are dealing with all these crises facing us. Yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of a theme in the next 60 minutes about leadership in times of crises. And in keeping with that, we checked in again with Joel Peterson, the former chairman of the board at JetBlue, why he says there's a need for more entrepreneurial leadership. That's exactly right. Also, President Clayton Rose of Bowdoin College talking about canceling fall sports, but also just getting students back on campus, the implications for learning and the implications for higher education overall, Carol. And speaking of implications, what about racism, Jason? A voice that you were like, we got to talk to. Bishop T.D. Jakes stopped by again to talk with us. His perspective, so thoughtful, so deep, so understanding. It's a wonderful interview. Exactly. And especially given where he is, he's in Texas where Mm -hmm. the virus is raging and they are facing so many big questions. But first, the coronavirus pandemic, it's infected more than 15 million people, killed more than 610,000 people worldwide since late January when it was first reported. Man, it seems like a long time ago. Well, Dr. Susan Bailey, she is the president of the American Medical Association, newly inaugurated. She joined us to talk about where we stand in the fight against COVID-19. Aside from being very hot in Texas, um, the coronavirus is uh, uh, very hot as well. Um, Texas is one of the many hot spots in the country for the virus, and uh, many of our hospitals um, are full. Um, and although we are seeing some little trends that we may be seeing a downward slide in cases, uh, which I think is because of the mask mandates our uh, governor introduced earlier in the month. Well, let's talk about that, uh, Dr. Bailey. Uh, As a physician and as someone who you and your colleagues have been tracking this so closely, I I feel like some local and state and even federal leaders are getting religion, maybe a little belatedly, on, on the mask wearing. What effect will that have? I mean, is this the sort of thing that could really as they say, sort of arrest this and and really change the trajectory now that it does feel like we're all getting on board with this? Um, Wearing a mask should not be a political statement. You know, that being said, leadership uh, and um, symbolism is very important in society. And um, 
the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, and the American Nurses Association recently released a statement that we are all in agreement that everyone needs to take the simple steps that we know will stop the spread of the virus by wearing masks, maintaining physical distancing, and washing hands. Um, We agree with the CDC that everybody in the country ought to be wearing a mask. I have to say, any of the experiences and interactions I've had, you know, with the medical community, certainly as as certainly the New York Metro has started to open up and reopen up, you know, um, hospitals and medical centers for kind of routine procedures, you know, doctors, everybody's in masks. Like, there's, it's just the way of life, and they understand that. That's just the way it has to be to keep everybody safe. Well, I think it's important to remember that back to business doesn't mean business as usual. I believe that we're going to have to observe our mask wearing, physical distancing, and hand washing for the uh, indefinite future. Um, We now have good scientific evidence to show that mask wearing does decrease the transmission of the virus. It protects the wearer. It protects the people that are near the wearer. And um, some have tried to make a controversy or a conspiracy out of changing recommendations over time. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. In the beginning of the pandemic, we did not realize how much asymptomatic spread there was um, out there. And we didn't think that wearing a mask would make much difference. And we wanted to make sure that there were masks available for healthcare personnel that were really um, getting heavy, heavy exposure to the virus. Now that we know that the virus is practically everywhere, um, we do think that masks for everyone are appropriate, even the cloth mask, um, and encourage everybody to wear them. So, Dr. Bailey, talk to us about, we'll talk about vaccines in a little while, but I I want to talk to you about treatments because I feel like that's one of the things we've been talking a little bit more about this week, Carol and I have on this program, is sort of what's out there right now to treat this disease because we know that a vaccine is months away, best case. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of treatments that are working? Well, unfortunately, the treatment side of the equation is still very, very sparse. Um, Everyone has likely heard of remdesivir, Mm -hmm. um, an antiviral medication, but that's being reserved for patients in the hospital who are extremely ill. Um, It may work a little bit better earlier in the illness, but um, that's going to be limited by the amount of medication that's available. Um, There's been some reports um, out of Great Britain that um, Mm -hmm. adding a steroid um, for severely ill patients can be very helpful. But other than that, the only treatment that we have really is prevention. Uh, There are a number of drugs in the pipeline, monoclonal antibodies and other therapeutics that we hope will, um, you know, be able to be used to treat COVID-19 at earlier stages, but those are all um, still in uh, the planning phase right now. And that's President of the American Medical Association, Susan Bailey. Good to catch up with her, Carol. New to the job, inaugurated remotely as everyone is working from home or certainly not together uh, these days and talk about a big job. 
Yeah, and what's interesting, Jason, what struck with me is how she reminded us that we now know that the virus is everywhere and that the only real treatment we have right now is prevention. So uh, I thought that really was very telling about kind of our world. She also gave us another line for our upcoming t-shirt collection, back to business doesn't mean business as usual. And I feel like that slogan applies to, to so many leaders of companies trying to figure their way back through the pandemic. Former JetBlue chairman of the board, Joel Peterson, has some advice on that as well. He says, be entrepreneurial. Absolutely. Opportunities abound even in crisis. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations, thoughtful conversations that we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. A lot of it, Jason, often deals, of course, with the dual crises when it comes to the virus and also inequalities in our society, a lot of it also related back to leadership that we need at this time. Absolutely. I feel like we are looking to leaders more and more. We're looking for more information from them. So who better to talk to than former JetBlue chairman Joel Peterson? Not only has he run some big companies, served Mm -hmm. on a number of boards, he's also an early stage investor. And so he gave us a peek into his portfolio, how his different companies are dealing with it, but also as a leadership expert, how he is giving advice around entrepreneurship. A lot of uh, leaders are doing really well. We have a portfolio of about 50 companies, and they're adapting to it. They're reconsidering what is their covenant with their customers, what are the hard things that they haven't done that they need to do, and what ways can they build their business in this time. There are opportunities that are coming to the fore. People are learning new ways of doing business. And I think we're actually recovering quite nicely from the COVID crisis. And so what's, what are the learnings that stick Joel, like what are the things that, you know, we sort of learned in these remote working environments in this Zoom world and the distance world that, you know, you feel like culturally or even in in a day-to-day setting are going to remain? Well, I think we probably won't be taking trips across the country for a one-hour meeting anymore. I think we found that there are a lot of things we can do on Zoom or other of these uh, kinds of programs that are actually quite effective. Uh, so I think I think the travel and uh, uh, hospitality industries will come back, but they'll come back relatively slowly. Um, I think we're finding that we miss people. I taught a course at Stanford in the spring, and uh, I, I used to come out of class on a high. I would, I would love <laughs> to be with my students. It was fun. I would come out this time to a screen and come away saying, how much longer before I have to do that again? You know? so, so I think we, we really understand that we, we need to be around people. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are getting a, a little bit of a warped sense of kind of our lives that we are living it so much. The things that we criticize our kids for doing, being so much in front of a screen, right. we, we have to to kind of keep things going. I want to go back to your portfolio of 50 companies. Talk to us a little bit about them, the types of companies, and you said that they're doing well. Uh, I am just curious about as a result of what we are going through in the pandemic, are there some in your portfolio that you're are like, this is going to be a turning point for them uh, in terms of maybe demand going forward? Well, uh, you may have heard of the company Franklin Covey. I've been on the board mm-hmm. there for about 29 years. It's a training company, and they thought for a while that they were going to really have trouble because they do a lot of online, or not online, but direct 
in-person trainings. And they've right. since converted it over to all online, and they're getting higher net promoter scores. They've provided a bunch of free materials to schools that they work with and families. You know, people are teaching their kids at home now need materials. So they just provided it free to them. So they're f- figuring out new ways to connect with customers. We've got another one that's a robotics packaging company, you know, and, and with fulfillment, what it is, uh, you are finding that they're being used a lot. They actually build packages around the product. So there's no air, there's no sealed air, there's no peanuts. They really huh. create these very efficient, so it's called uh, smart packaging for a green planet. And so they, they've done well. So it really depends. Each one is different. Another one called Cotopaxi uh, has basically given a lot of money to help people through this COVID thing, through uh, sales of their uh, product. So interesting. Well, and I have to tell you, Jason, uh, you know, Allbirds is in their portfolio. Jason and I are both fans. Um, I'm wearing my Allbirds literally right now. And I have to say, you go to, you know, I remember, yeah, you go to their store in New York, and I mean, it was constantly packed with people buying not just one pair, but usually multiple multiple pairs. How do you decide what you're going to invest in? You know, I'm pretty old fashioned. I'm probably the opposite of Warren Buffett. Uh, He always talks about the business plan beats out the people. I uh, invest in people. I find great entrepreneurs and I back them and help them do great businesses. So uh, to me, and that's why our portfolio has a lot of these different kinds of things. I was the first uh, investor in Bonobos that you may have heard about, Minipant business. Um, And it's because there was a couple of students of mine that I loved. And, uh, you know, I just figured out how how to help them get... And what is the, um, and, and do people, you mentioned a, a couple former students, like, how do people find you? I mean, I assume you're, you, you are sought after in many ways, <laughs> uh, Joel, but, but how do people get to you? Well, uh, so we're uh, about a billion dollar uh, series of funds. We're in Salt Lake. Uh, we're on the internet. I know I have a big network because yeah. I've done business on the coast for a long time. So, and then I, I always tell people I've done a lot of favors for people over the years, never expecting anything back. And every once in a while, I get surprised. So that's a source of, of deals. So, Joel, I want to talk about leadership uh, in the midst of this world we are living in. We got to chat with you a little bit about that when we were talking earlier in this year about your new book, Entrepreneurial Leadership. But this is a real test, I would imagine. And I know you talk to CEOs all across the world. If you can generalize, what makes for a good leader in this topsy-turvy world? Well, it's actually, uh, you know, I thought for a while this notion of putting out a book on entrepreneurial leadership uh, was the worst possible timing during this COVID thing. But I actually (laughs) think that coming out of it, we need entrepreneurial leaders. These are people who really innovate. They create durable change. They're not merely presiders. They're not merely administrators, managers, politicians. You know, the, the kinds of leaders that you sometimes get in organizations. I think it's going to be hard to lead an organization out of this mess without having kind of an entrepreneurial uh, mindset. 
That's JetBlue former chairman of the board, Joel Peterson. Check out the full conversation on our podcast feed. Check out his book, too, that's out, Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and Running Stuff. Great conversation, Jason. We talked to him a little bit, too, about the airline industry and how he said, you know, flying across country for a one-hour business meeting, mm, not likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah, we're certainly hearing that more and more business travel is going to be fundamentally changed and may never get back to the level it is. I'll tell you something else that's going to change in the short term, midterm, and maybe the long term, higher education, Carol. And we put a lot of questions and got some good answers from Bowdoin College President Clayton Rose. He talked about the school's plans for the fall and what it may mean for the future. Yeah, exactly. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. Another busy week, Carol. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to say, we love checking in with colleges and universities because what we're finding is there's no one size fits all when it comes to reopening plans for the fall semester. Bowdoin's college president, Clayton Rose, joined us along with Bloomberg News higher education finance reporter, Janet. Lauren to talk about Bowdoin's return to campus. Two overarching goals that we were um, working on and that really drove us in the decision making were first and foremost the health and safety of our students, faculty, staff, and the neighbors that we have in Brunswick. And then second, and very much uh, connected to this, was delivering for our students wherever they were going to be in the world an excellent Bowdoin education in the fall. So those are the two North Stars that we anchored ourselves to. And the decisions that we took uh, on the shape of the fall uh, and how we were going to go about um, uh, um, coming back uh, in one form or another were really driven by those two things. We're returning to campus about 40% of our students. The first-year class plus several groups of students uh, around the first-year class. Um, uh, And then the rest of our students uh, will be off campus. Virtually all of our classes will be done online. And that um, gets to the second piece, this excellent education piece that I talked about. Uh, We are uh, made an affirmative decision that the best way to deliver an excellent Bowdoin education was to have all of our faculty all the staff they work with, and frankly, all of our students focused on a single method of delivery, which was in an online version, rather than doing some in person, some in some kind of a hybrid, and some online, but to have everybody focused in a single direction and to put all of our resources and attention on that single direction. And so far in the work that we've been doing, uh, we're uh, very optimistic about um, being able to deliver on that second goal while also protecting the health and safety of everyone. So can you tell us a little bit about what being on campus is going to look like for, you know, the 40%, mostly the freshmen, lots of testing, lots of masks, not a lot of social interaction. Paint a picture for us. Mm. Uh, well, absolutely true. And I, it, it um, goes without saying that this year on our campus and every other campus will be very different from uh, what has historically been uh, a, um, a fall at college. And for first-year students, what you know they've been thinking about and, and getting geared up for for several years now. Um, nonetheless, I think the uh, the experience for our first years and for the others on campus will be uh, both important for them, and I'll come back to that in a second, and also um, fun and interesting and engaging in the age of COVID-19. 
first of all, we'll have um, uh, a whole set of safety protocols, and you alluded to several of them. Uh, um, face masks will be required in all indoor spaces, and then depending on the groups outdoors, uh, there'll be self-monitoring, good hygiene practices, and social distancing. Uh, the classrooms will be that we're, we are going to use, and we'll have a handful of classes for the first year students that will be taught in person. Will be designed with safety in mind. Our dining has been completely re-engineered to allow us to again uh, manage it in a safe way. All students on campus will have a single room, and there'll be a, a very low density of folks that will be sharing bathrooms with very particular hygiene and uh, cleaning practices. Uh, so very different kind of uh, of, uh, of sense of the place, but. Uh, we'll be engaging in uh, all kinds of ways to build community, to engage in activities, to have students do a number of the things that they normally do on campus, sometimes in lower density groups mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes in different ways. Um, uh, we will, as you said, uh, have a very rigorous testing regimen. Um, we will be testing everybody on campus two times a week. Um, and uh, have a whole protocol established for that. We're working with the Broad Institute in uh, Boston, which is in Cambridge, which has uh, developed a fantastic testing program for colleges and universities on the, um, in New England and in, uh, in, in, the, in the lower part of New England. Right. So, um, President Rose, you had talked about doing testing twice a week. Can you give us a sense of how much that costs and what kind of a burden that adds to um, to your budget for the year that you weren't expecting a year ago? Well, the the uh, uh, the total cost of a health and safety program, which of which testing is a significant part, but not the only part, is going to be considerable uh, for Bowdoin and for uh, for every other school. Uh, the cost of the tests itself um, are about $30 per test. That's one of the things that the Broad Institute has been able to provide to colleges and universities. It's a very high-quality test, um, very accurate. And that's Bowdoin College President Clayton Rose joining us along with higher ed finance reporter Janet Lauren from Bloomberg. And Carol, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is there are very few people more on the front lines when it comes to making big decisions than college presidents. We hear that over and over again. We get a chance to talk to a lot of them. At the same time, when you think about the front lines of everything that's going on right now, pastors, they are dealing with this on mm -hmm. a very personal and very meaningful level. And Jason, we're talking about T.D. Jakes, and he talked with us about really how to change the course of our history when it comes to racism. One of the takeaways, you know, people just having the courage to talk to others that are different than all of us. A really meaningful conversation. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had across the week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Carol. And I have to say, it's a great way to wrap up our weekend show. We've been really looking forward to talking to T.D. Jakes. I mean, as the nation, Jason, as you know, deals with so many different crises, health disparities, the pandemic, inequality, fighting racism. Someone who is a true voice on all of this is Bishop T.D. Jakes. He's chairman of the T.D. Jakes Foundation, pastor of the Potter's House. He's an author, an entrepreneur. He's an educator. And he caught up with us to talk about where we stand, ways to move forward, and coping with loss. I can put it this way. In the last two and a half weeks, I haven't had a day go by that I haven't gotten a call that somebody died. Mm. Uh, so uh, being a pastor, you get a front row seat at, at, the, at the final services. And uh, so it, it is 
disastrous right now. Uh, the numbers are really high. The death rates are escalating. Uh, uh, again, black and brown communities are disproportionately hit. And so that trauma from that hit is felt uh, very strongly amongst clergy because there are people that we know or related to people that we know. And I literally haven't had a day go by that I haven't gotten a phone call like that. And so I don't, I mean, this is a tough question to answer, I, I know, but what do you say to people, Bishop Jakes? I mean, you're having these conversations every day. It is, what is your message to, to them, especially given exactly what you said, that disproportionality here, that this is affecting uh, you know, black and brown people at a much, much higher rate? That, that is just inarguable at this moment. I think that we cannot rely on our elected officials to make the determinations for our health and well-being. Given that we're disproportionately affected, we have to be disproportionately careful. And I've been telling people uh, just to distance themselves, uh, to use common sense, to avoid close gatherings and celebrations. We have a tendency to think that if we know people well, they ought to be safe to be around. But that's not true right now, and it's a new normal. And it's requiring a discipline that we're not used to, but it's necessary in order to keep uh, our well-being up. And then uh, I've had several people that have contracted and recovered. So, you know, on the good side of it, we are seeing some recoveries and some success stories. But I think there's a great deal of apprehension in Texas right now as it relates to the broadness and uh, the far-reaching effects of this particular pandemic. I do wonder, too, how you see it, um, Bishop Jakes, especially since, you know, Jason and I talk, you know, we're in 18, 19 weeks of lock, lockdown, essentially. For the most part, we have been at home almost exclusively um, as our offices have yet to really reopen here in, the, in New York City. Uh, it's a slow move back. But I do wonder, are you a little angry that, you know, there was a lot that we've learned through what happened with the virus on the East Coast that we could not or should should have been smarter as a nation, especially when we know, as you said, those communities that are disproportionately affected, you know, that we could have been smarter in slowing the impact, reducing the impact that we're now seeing play out in Texas and other areas, certainly there in the South and out in the West. I, I have survived a, a lot of catastrophes. I was deeply involved with Katrina and, and a lot of things. It's hard in real-time speed to to really aim at, at who's at fault and, and where to place the anger. Yes, I'm a little angry, but exactly where all the place of anger, I think, is, is another issue. Uh, we would have loved to have had stronger national leadership on this issue. And even on a statewide level, I think we could have opened up a lot slower than we did. Uh, but, but I couldn't control that. And so in a situation where we can't control the outcomes of the political terrain that we're facing right now, we have to be the CEO of us and hmm. make the kinds of decisions that are strong and wise for yourself. Uh, even as it relates to children going back to school, you, your parents are going to have to step in and make final decisions because right now there's so many mixed messages. Nobody knows exactly what to do. So, Bishop Jakes, uh, I'm so glad we're getting to talk to you, and, and it's overdue in part because you were one of the first folks I thought of, you know, as we started to go through these last couple months, and when we saw what happened in Minneapolis, and, and we saw what that triggered nationally, I, you were one of the voices that, that I want to hear from 
around all this because I want to understand how you view what has happened since the killing of George Floyd, the reaction within your community and, and also the reaction in the broader community across America. You talk to so many people, you know, both in your congregation, but also national leaders, corporate leaders as well. And I wonder what you make of this time we're living in. <laughs> uh, it's like reliving a nightmare from the 60s, being my age. I saw the 60s and I saw this too. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a movie I don't want to see again, but it's happening in real-time speed. The good side of it is more and more people of, that are not of color are taking up this issue. And that's a very heartening, encouraging thing to see. Uh, there has been some progress made. I call them cosmetic changes in terms of statues being removed. I'm not talking about violently so, but legally so. And I'm also hardened by the fact that there have been uh, CEOs and corporations who have worked hard to correct some of the situations that existed uh, as it relates to the Confederate flag and 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 and, and Obama served and things like that. But those are all cosmetic changes. They're nice. They're important, but they're cosmetic changes. The cancer that we still have still exists, uh, uh, and I think that we have to work very hard uh, to to resolve some of the issues in the criminal justice system. We have to work very hard to get a national database set up for police officers who have had uh, problems in other precincts so that we don't make the mistake of the Catholic Church and move them from uh, precinct to precinct like they move them from parish to parish. Uh, if we listen at history, we would learn quickly that we have to do things differently than what we've done before. Uh, and I, I think that there's a lot to be done in terms of uh, the way the laws are as it relates to uh, immunity right now for police officers and how we correct that sort of thing. That's the deeper cancer issue that needs to be corrected. We have to look at our communities as well, at job opportunities and training and retraining people to create uh, opportunities. Well, that is something Jason and I have had some, a lot of conversations around Bishop Jakes about that ultimately these inequalities, they start really early on for individuals. It's a poverty issue, you know, and that we've got to figure out how to change that in our system so that everyone truly has the same access to opportunity. And that means, you know, from the minute you're born. And so how do we... How do we really change that? We keep talking about better education. Well, we've spent a lot of money on education, and yet here we are. So how do we really tackle that that problem that starts from, in many cases, from the minute somebody's born? And it depends on where you're born and the color of your skin. We, we've spent a lot of money on education, and we've made some inroads in terms of education, but we've got people that are educated flipping hamburgers right now. Right. We've got to create opportunities, and we've got a whole our corporations accountable to uh, diversity and inclusion on every level, not just entry-level positions. We need people in high-ranking positions that are as diverse as our country is. We need that in our government. We need that everywhere so that when we sit down at the table to make decisions, that the people who are making decisions look like the people who are going to have to live with those decisions. And that's just a wise way of leadership and government and going forward. I think we also have to look at how our cities are constructed because they were not constructed in a way to provide commerce into uh, certain areas and certain sectors are designed in such a way, the highways constructed in such a way that business doesn't 
creep down into those cities. It's been proven statistically that low-income housing grouped together does not work, and yet we continue to down that path rather than mixed-income housing. And I think some of it is an economic issue. Some of it is an education issue. But you can be educated and you can be wealthy and you can still be shot down by, uh, by police brutality. So it's not all education and it's not all uh, economics. It's, it's really a total reform of our system. And I think it's starting to happen. Uh, it just needs to continue to happen. And I'm worried that the conversation gets sidetracked by the vigilantes who take the message into their own hands and misrepresent the heart of what we're trying to do in our country. They have to be intentional about it. I mean, slavery was intentional. Jim Crow was intentional. Inclusion has to be intentional. It has to be intentional and it has to be comprehensive. And uh, it's not just going to happen organically. We have to be intentional and go out and recruit and recognize that our companies do not reflect our country. And uh, they have to be very, very intentional about that. And I think where they are having difficulties working together to find people they have to work with other organizations. That's Bishop T.D. Jakes, and you can check out that full conversation on our podcast feed. Jason, this is a voice who has seen so much, and I feel like we come away with such a deeper understanding of kind of the problems that we're facing right now and maybe how to get out of it. Well, and I feel like every time we talk to him, he sort of twists the prism a little bit and basically helps us look at things slightly differently. And that advice that you mentioned a few minutes ago really stuck with me of you got to spend some time talking to people who aren't like you. And I feel like all of us are being reminded of that all the time, whether it's talking with people, whether it's even watching or reading things that you might not normally watch just to try and understand people a little bit more. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol. Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And there you can hear the full conversation, some of which you heard on this show, but some of which you didn't. We're on the air for four (laughs) hours every day talking to all sorts of people. You can hear the full conversation with former JetBlue chairman Joel Peterson, the full conversation with Bishop T.D. Jakes and many more some great things to listen to over the weekend. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.